Hey everybody, Pastor Dan here. Thank you so much for listening to our sermon podcast. Before we get into today's message, I just want to give you a heads up that January is Stewardship Month here at Brockport First Baptist. All month we're going to be studying some of Jesus' teachings about money in the Gospel of Mark while we reflect together on our own stewardship. If you've been blessed by this podcast and would like to support the ministries of our church, head over to brockportfirstbaptist.org give. You'll find a bunch of ways there that you can support our church, including by shopping through our Amazon Smile link and by giving online through PayPal. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting our church. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now on to the podcast. You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thanks for that reading, Christy. That was fantastic with the organ there. <laughs> we should do that more often. We should let... No one will ever want to lay read. Um, before we get into uh, today's sermon, um, I want to say thanks uh, to Kurt and to everyone who shared this month and to everyone who uh, handed in uh, the pledge cards. Um, thank you all so much, and especially for folks who shared testimonies. Um, I got to say, some weeks it's been challenging for me to follow some of your stories um, of just how God uh, is at work in your life, so um, truly thank you. Um, as part of our Stewardship Month, we have been looking uh, Sunday mornings at Jesus' teachings about money in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And last week, someone actually came up to me after church, um, and they mentioned to me that this hasn't been a normal stewardship series. And I think that was a compliment. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Different doesn't always mean better. Um, But from talking to them, I think I know uh, what this person meant. A lot of times when churches talk about stewardship, when they talk about money, um, the message will often just boil down to, like, give us money. That's usually about the extent of it. Um, And we had some of that. Last week's sermon uh, got into a little bit of that. But this series has been way broader than just talking about giving money to the church. We've touched on a lot of stuff under the banner of stewardship. Uh, We talked about the importance of caring for the elderly a few weeks ago. 
Uh, We talked about wealth and how it's accumulated, the ethics with that. We talked about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and taxes and the importance of stewarding our allegiance. We've covered a lot of different topics because the Bible has a lot of different stuff to say about money. Um, The Bible actually talks about money more than just about any other topic. Uh, There are over 2,000 references in Scripture to money and possessions, Um, That comes out to about one in every ten verses will say something about money or possessions or economics, kind of money broadly. Um, That's more than the Bible talks about prayer. That's more than the Bible talks about faith. That's more than the Bible talks about heaven or hell or a lot of those big topics we think about a lot. Even Jesus. Um, If we look at Jesus' teachings, about a third of his parables have something to say about money, possessions, or economics. With 2,000 references, there's definitely a lot in Scripture about stewarding to the church. That's in there. Um, you've got the tithe to the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, you've got Paul writing in 1 Timothy um, that pastors and teachers and clergy deserve to be paid. There's all that kind of stuff for sure. But far more often, when the Bible talks about money and economics and stewardship, the focus is on economic justice far more often than it talks about just giving to the church. How do we treat the poor? How are the orphans and widows doing? How is wealth being distributed in society? Are the rich getting richer while the poor get poorer? Are people gorging themselves on plenty while their neighbors starve? These are the questions time and time again that we find Scripture asking about money. The emphasis is on economic justice. Now, unfortunately, you wouldn't know that talking to some Christians, right? Um, We live in a very individualistic society, and we tend to read the Bible through a super individualistic lens, as if the Bible's all about me and my relationship to God. So we often think that, like, hey, if I give to charity, I tie the church, I am nice to poor people when I pass them on the street in Rochester, I check all those boxes, I'm doing my part, But as important as that is, as important as it is to be generous and to steward our wealth as individuals, Scripture also has a lot to say about how society, how communities treat the poor. Nations rise and fall on this. Kings lose their kingdoms. Entire people groups are judged in Scripture based on how they treat the poor. If you want a chief example, just look at Israel. Look at God's people. When God's people are carried off to exile in Babylon taken away from their homes, losing everything for 70 years, the primary explanation the prophets return to time and time again is that we failed to care for the poor. Now, if you've ever had a discussion um, or maybe a debate with a fellow Christian about poverty and efforts to help the poor on like a larger communal societal level, there's a good chance you've heard the line, the poor you will always have with you. This quote comes up a lot in these conversations. It comes out of our passage for today. Jesus says it, and it's usually invoked by Christians who are looking to justify the existence of poverty, as if we don't really need to worry about it. Because the poor you'll always have with you 
Jesus said it, so it must be true. Why should we try to alleviate poverty? Why should we try to make poor people no longer poor? They're always going to be poor. The poor you will always have with you. So why bother? How many of us have heard someone use this line of thinking with this line before? Like three people. <laughs> okay. Um, there's a few more than that. Uh, maybe, I should, maybe I should just pray and we're done. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, I promise you, I promise you, um, this comes up. Google it. Um, there are a lot of Christians out there. A shockingly common way this line gets used is by Christians who assume Jesus is telling his disciples they don't have to worry about the poor because the poor you'll always have with you. So there's nothing we can do about it. Of course, that's a reading that completely falls apart if we actually read the line in context. To give you some background, uh, we are in Mark chapter 14. So just to kind of set the stage a little bit, Palm Sunday has just happened. Uh, When Jesus rides into Jerusalem being hailed as Messiah, everyone's waving the branches. Then he goes to the temple and he's flipping over tables. That all just went down like a chapter ago. Jesus is in Jerusalem It's Holy Week. He's on his way to the cross. Right after this passage, actually, the passage we read for today, Judas, one of the disciples, is going to go off and betray Jesus to the chief priests. So, like, the end is near. It's coming. Jesus is going to be dead in a few days. And it's in that context that we get our passage. Mark 14, beginning in verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they scolded her. By the way, um, 300 denarii is about a year's wages, a little less than a year's wages for like a day laborer. So we're talking, I don't know, equivalent of $25,000, $30,000 bottle of perfume. This is expensive stuff. But Jesus said, <clears throat> let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. The, the Greek there says she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you will always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. This is a powerful story. Jesus is about to die. He knows it. The disciples should know it because at this point he's told them like three times, but it's not quite getting through. Um, the only other person in the, wor- in the room other than Jesus who knows what's going on is this woman. We don't know who she is. We don't know where she comes from. The text doesn't even give us her name. We do know that she managed to get her hands on some very expensive perfume There weren't a lot of honest ways for a woman in that world in that time to get her hands on that kind of money, but somehow she did. And she uses this expensive oil, this nard, ointment, 
to anoint Jesus for his burial. Jesus is not debating the disciples on the merits of social programs to help the poor. Can we agree on that much? Like, are we on the same page there? Yeah. Um, The disciples are criticizing this woman for this lavish, radical display of love and devotion, and Jesus defends her. That's what's going on here. He says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. You will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what this woman has done will be told in remembrance of her. Side note, um, we've got four gospels in the Bible, right? Four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're pretty different. Uh, If you ever read through the gospels, it's a trip because they tell different stories. The timeline plays out in a different order. They have very different perspectives on the story of Jesus. But every single one of them contains some form of this story. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what this woman has done will be told in remembrance of her. This is a beautiful story. It's a story of devotion by the only person in the room who knows what's going on. And when Christians take one line of this story tear it out of context, and use it to excuse poverty, we are not reading the Bible very well. The poor you will always have with you. The poor you will always have with you. What if we tried to redeem this line? What if in line with the Bible's consistent teaching around justice for the poor, what if we reclaimed this line and actually tried to read it in context and explore some of the wisdom here for how we are called to treat and minister to the poor as disciples of Jesus? That sounds like a fun way to end a stewardship series to me. So let's do it. Uh, With the time we have left today, I want to unpack four alternative readings of this line, four better ways to read this line. You can bring it out at your next dinner party. You you probably wouldn't. Um, But four different ways to read this line in context, which point us to the heart of Jesus who came to announce good news to the poor. First alternative reading is this. The poor you will always have with you, so serve them. You might have caught this earlier when we like read through it, but this is what Jesus actually says if we let him finish the sentence, right? Uh, Mark 14, verse 7, you will always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. Funny, that part doesn't show up in the debates very often, but you will not always have me. This is implying there's going to come a point in time when Jesus is no longer present with us physically. For the disciples, that time is coming sooner than they know. But when that time comes, followers of Jesus can take all that love, all that devotion, all that care that they show to Christ, and they can show it to the poor. 
John Calvin, of all people, understood this. Do you guys remember John Calvin? Anyone remember him? We talked about him maybe like a month or two ago. Um, He was a French church reformer in the 1500s. He was the guy who came up with predestination, uh, the idea that like we don't have free will and God predetermines everything that happens. I don't really follow him on all that stuff. But John Calvin understood this much. Um, This is a quote, I'll put it up here on the slides, from Calvin's commentary on the Bible. This was published in the 1540s, commenting on this story. I should read it in like a 1500s French accent. No, I won't. (laughs) That would be so offensive. I won't do that. Do we wish to lay out our money properly? Let us bestow it on the poor. For Christ says that he is not with us. Again, when he says that the poor will always be with us, we infer from it that if many are in poverty, God presents to us those on whom our charity may be exercised. It's a really elaborate 1540s way of saying the poor you will always have with you, so serve them. Christians are not supposed to just sit back and let the poor stay poor. We're supposed to do something about it, to try. That's what following Jesus looks like. That's a component of discipleship. Jesus spent his life among the poor. He identified with them. He served them. And now that he's no longer here with us physically, the church is the hands and feet of Jesus. So we'd better be serving the poor. Christians had better be at the forefront of efforts to help the poor. We should be advocating, helping, serving, defending, giving, doing everything in our power to steward our resources for those in need. The poor you will always have with you, so serve them. Second alternative way to read this passage is the poor you will always have with you, so treat them with dignity. I think a lot of times um, we tend to treat the poor like an inconvenience, uh, an annoyance, an embarrassment. Uh, Maybe it's because seeing the poor makes us feel guilty about our own excesses. Maybe it's because uh, their presence reveals the injustices that are still very much a part of our world. The presence of the poor, the mere sight of poor people makes us uncomfortable. We'd rather they be hidden away, tucked out of sight. Um, In Los Angeles, where I lived for a number of years, there's a lot of homeless people, especially around the beaches. The weather is nice there. You've got a lot of tourists who might give you a couple bucks because they're not jaded like all the locals, right? And it's really common around the beaches in LA to see benches set up that look like this. I got a picture here for you. Maybe you've seen benches like this before. These are homeless-proof benches. They call it homeless-proof architecture. They're built in such a way that, one, they're not that comfortable to sit on for very long, but two, so that homeless people can't sleep on them. It's also not uncommon out in L.A. um, and other places around the country uh, to see stuff like this under overpasses. Uh, This is a picture. It might be hard to make out. Those are concrete spikes under a bridge which serve no purpose other than keeping homeless people from camping out there. In our society, we practically make it illegal to be poor, at least poor in public. 
For us, it should be different. Christians should not be taking our lead from this. We should be countercultural. In the early church, uh, one of the things that made Christians stand out, that really freaked out the Romans, was how the barriers between rich and poor were seemingly erased in Christian community. Around the communion table, it didn't matter. Social class, gender, which ethnicity you were a part of, all of that just like faded away. You had people who shouldn't even be in the same room together sitting down for a meal. Anyone could belong. What if we viewed the poor as a valued part of society? What if we treated poor people like a blessing? What if we honored the poor? What if it was an honor to have the poor in our midst as a valued part of society? What if we saw homeless people, people who are down and out, as human beings that God can work through, minister through, even minister to us. We don't know much about this woman who poured the oil on Jesus' head. She could have been rich, although I don't see most rich people just pouring out $30,000 worth of perfume, especially not on some itinerant preacher. Um, Some commentators have surmised that she was a prostitute. Uh, The Gospel of Luke, in his version of the story, calls her an immoral woman. Good old Luke. Uh, That's another way she might have acquired this expensive perfume. She was probably an outsider. The kind of person that the disciples were embarrassed to see in their midst. And she shows up and ministers to Jesus when he's on his way to the cross. The poor you will always have with you. Maybe that's a blessing. Maybe that's a promise and an instruction to treat the poor with dignity. The poor you will always have with you, so treat them with dignity. Two down, two more to go. You guys are doing great. Third alternative way to read this line. The poor you will always have with you. Where you find them, you'll find God. That might sound a little radical, but all you have to do for this to make sense is read the Bible. (laughs) Over and over again in Scripture, God shows up among the poor and the marginalized. It's like a theme. It's like every page. In ancient Egypt, God doesn't show up with like Pharaoh and the Egyptian nobility. God shows up with the Hebrew slaves. Throughout the stories of ancient Israel, you get God showing up with some kings here and there, but for the most part, God is with the prophets, who are usually poor, peasants, farmers, shepherds. In Babylon, God doesn't speak through a mighty king like Nebuchadnezzar. God speaks through a scrappy, poor little exile named Daniel. If you look at all the heroes of the Bible, you would be hard-pressed to find one who's not poor or marginalized at some point. I have a list here, so I don't leave anyone out. I'm sure I left a lot of people out, though. Um, Noah was a drunk who was laughed at by his neighbors. Abraham and Sarah were nomads. Joseph was a slave. Jacob and his sons were refugees. Uh, Moses was a fugitive who hid out in the wilderness for 40 years. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was an immigrant. David was a poor shepherd. Daniel was an exile. Esther was a concubine. 
Mary was a pregnant, unwed teenager. Jesus was the son of a poor carpenter who grew up to become a homeless, itinerant preacher. Over and over again, God shows up among the poor. If we want to see God, we should be looking to them. Notice, even in our passage for today, um, this part's really easy to miss. Where's Jesus having dinner? In a leper's house. That's right, Bonnie, you nailed it. Verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Jesus is eating with a guy who has an infectious skin disease. We don't know much about Simon the leper. Uh, This is the only story he shows up. We know he was a leper, which meant that he was probably poor, an outcast, and ceremonially unclean. Jesus has days to live. He's just marched into Jerusalem being hailed as a king. In less than a week, he's going to be dead on a Roman cross. And where does the Son of God choose to have dinner at the house of Simon the leper? The poor you will always have with you. Where you find them, you'll find God. Fourth and final alternative reading for this passage. The poor you will always have with you on this side of eternity. For um, Christians who take this line out of context to justify the existence of poverty, they do get one thing right. Unless something drastically changes about our world, which I don't anticipate anytime soon, there will always be poverty in some form. There's always going to be injustice, there's always going to be inequality on this side of eternity. But in the kingdom of God, things will be different. When God is all in all, when Christ returns to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, on that beautiful day, scripture tells us that the last will be first and the first will be last. The poor will be lifted up and God will bring down the powerful. That means there's no distinction between them. That's a great hope to look forward to, but what does that actually mean for us now? How are we supposed to live in light of that promise? Do we, do we turn a blind eye to poverty because the poor you will always have with you? Or do we live today in light of that promised future? might be a little abstract. Let me use a few examples to make this real. On this side of eternity, there's always going to be death. Should we embrace death and celebrate it, promote it? (laughs) Glad no one said yes, thank God. Uh, Or are we called to be a people of life? On this side of eternity, there's always going to be sin. Do we embrace sin? Do we celebrate it? Or do we pursue holiness, Christ-likeness? On this side of eternity, there is always going to be division. Should we feed into that division and try to divide ourselves more? Or are we supposed to promote unity in Christ? 
The poor will always be with you. There is always going to be inequality and injustice on this side of eternity. But don't believe for a minute that we should be satisfied with that. The poor you will always have with you. But in God's kingdom, it'll be different. Live today in light of that promise. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for every blessing you've given us, for the resources that you have invited us to steward for your glory. God, we ask that you'd guide us as a church and as individuals as we strive to be good stewards of those resources. Help us to see the poor in our midst through your eyes. Help us to honor them, to welcome them, to learn from them, and to serve them. God, don't let us become satisfied or try to make excuses for the inequality that persists in our midst. But Lord, help us to live today in light of your promised future. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.